We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. Of the 849,000 people who live in Baltimore County, nearly a third are African American. That's a far different picture than two generations ago. Lenwood Johnson, a historian, a founder of the county's NAACP, and a retired member of the county's planning staff, remembered how scattered and impoverished African American neighborhoods were in the county until President Lyndon S. Johnson signed the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Lenwood Johnson recalled... Quote, the next thing I know, it was almost like a 19th century land rush up Liberty Road. The only thing missing was a chuck wagon following, the Conestoga wagons heading out Liberty Road, close quote. Johnson was talking to Gregory Smith-Simon, a sociology professor whose latest book focuses on Liberty Road and how African Americans broke through the color barrier and racial tensions to become not only suburbanites but middle class. Smith-Simon's book is Liberty Road, Black Middle Class Suburbs and the Battle Between Civil Rights and Neoliberalism. Smith-Simon teaches at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and he joins us by Zoom. Welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to be here, Sheila. You grew up in Reisterstown, not far from Randallstown. Is is that what drew you to looking at the significance of Liberty Road? Absolutely. Um, As a sociologist, I had been studying race and class and community and neighborhood conflicts and growth in lots of different places. Um, but I knew that there was something interesting going on in the suburbs. And I think as a kid, and for a lot of us growing up in the suburbs, you know, we get this story that there is no history there. And then you scratch the surface and you find out that there are absolutely fascinating stories and really important developments that I wanted to understand better. You also point out that the name Liberty Road has a ring to it. Yeah, it, it feels to me like it's, you know, written for the civil rights movement. I mean, here you have the movement of African-Americans in the civil rights movement and beyond up Liberty Road. And you get the sense that, you know, the further everyone can move out, the further we've progressed. And as that movement slows or is constrained, we understand what the hurdles and constraints are of integration, of freedom of choice in housing, in access to decent housing, and, you know, sort of the spread of the suburban ideal from what was once sort of a, a white retreat to a larger American vision. So give us a short overview. What did you set out to show in this book? Well, the first thing was a, a development that I think so many of us are not aware of and that sociology hasn't paid much attention to. You know, we know about the urban Black experience. I have lots of colleagues who have done great work on that. We know about the rural ba- Black experience. But today, 40% of Americans live in the suburbs. And I don't think that there's a real good cultural understanding of what an authentic black suburban identity is. You know, what does that mean? And we also have this idea that the suburbs are all white. And, you know, for anybody who lives in the suburbs, we know that that's not true anymore. Um, Even if, you know, people I interviewed said that in the the 1970s, Baltimore County felt like a plantation or was designed to be exclusive, you know, had a county executive at the time who didn't really want black people moving in. Um, So I wanted to understand how it was that everyday residents, activists, professionals, people in the the roles they found themselves in could make a contribution to the civil rights movement and the movement for equal access to housing. Um, It was a story that I hadn't seen told before, and I found out very quickly that it was a really interesting one. 
Chapter 1 starts in the mid-1960s with the pushback against the renowned Baltimore Colts tight end John Mackey and his wife Sylvia, both college graduates, buying a house in a white Baltimore County neighborhood. Their realtor was dubbed a blockbuster. And you go deep into why you think blockbusting is a flawed way to understand racial transition. Give us the short version of your conclusion about blockbusting. So the story that got taught for years in in class and that I've taught like everybody else is that the blockbuster was this marginal figure on the outside who um, scared whites into selling at a loss and then jacked up the prices on housing and took advantage of blacks. And it created this idea that everyone lost out. Um, in the stereotype that also had some anti-Semitic casts to it too, that I think were important. What I found is that the people who were willing to sell to black buyers or to sell irrespective of color, you know, they were generally civil rights activists. They were people who were willing to cross the color line. And so they got vilified by their contemporaries, but I think it's a real disservice for us to do that. Very often they were pioneering realtors like James Crockett, the first African-American member of the the board of realtors in in Baltimore, uh, people like you mentioned, Mal Sherman, um, who, you know, on the advice of his rabbi decided that he was going to cross the color line and take whatever business consequences came from it. Um, James Rouse, who, you know, Baltimoreans all know for Harbor Place in Columbia, Maryland, was, you know, I didn't know this when I started, but um, as I started interviewing civil rights activists who had moved out to the county early on, everybody had gotten their mortgage from James Rouse. Well, that's because his company was about the only one who was writing decent mortgages for black home buyers. And so an individual actor like any of these three folks really can make a difference in the growth of a community. You make the point that focusing on the blockbusting analysis also ignores the eagerness of so many African-Americans to find better housing than they could get in the city. Yeah, it it makes in that story, they're sort of passive, whereas what I found was a really great story of people actively trying to find good housing, to build good communities, to to take some risks, to go to some places that were uncomfortable. Um, And it also uh, lets everybody else off the hook. Um, You know, the reason that a neighborhood goes from white to black isn't really because black people move in. They're just looking for housing. The key thing is that All of the other white buyers in the metro area stop buying in a neighborhood when it's about 25% black or more. It's not the people who move out and it's not the people who move in. It's the people who do nothing that resegregate our neighborhoods over and over again. And, you know, what's interesting is that some of those neighborhoods in transition are the most vital and honestly the most profitable places to buy a home. Um, But people aren't ready for that. And so I think by telling this story, it's a way for us to think about what we want the suburbs to look like and how we would all be better off uh, if we did that. That's Brooklyn College sociology professor Gregory Smith-Simon. On the record on WIPR's Sheila Cast, we're talking about his latest book, Liberty Road, Black Middle Class Suburbs and the Battle Between Civil Rights and Neoliberalism. You remind readers often that many factors and many people were involved in making middle-class black suburbs. One factor I didn't expect was the activism of the U.S. Social Security Administration, which located in Catonsville in 1960. I mean, I knew the federal bureaucracy employed many African Americans, but not how it worked to make sure that they could buy or rent houses nearby. Tell us a little about that. I never thought I would utter the sentence, the story of Social Security is really fascinating, but my goodness, is it a good one. Um, 
there was a guy named John Michener who was a Quaker and and therefore sort of a you know a racial equality activist who lived in Baltimore and wanted to do something about it. He also worked for the Social Security Administration. Um, he had his community association write a letter to the head of Social Security saying, we see that you've moved out to the suburbs. We want to know what you're going to do to make sure that your black employees can buy houses in the area. What are you going to do for integration? His bosses received the letter signed from by the community association and gave it to their employee, John Michener, and told him to write a response. <laughs> so he was put in the position of writing a response to the letter and demands he had written himself. And so he said, sure. And he wrote back and said, you know, this is an excellent letter. You make really good points. We're really going to have to move on this. And what he did was find a realty company that was in trouble for discriminatory practices. And at the time before the internet, the only way you found out about houses for sale was getting access to the multiple listings. And you had to have a printer that printed out the listings of the houses that were for sale. So he got them as part of the settlement to physically put one of their multiple listing printers in the Social Security Administration headquarters out in Woodlawn. And that way, Black employees of Social Security could find out about houses that were for sale out there. Um, and so it's these sort of crafty little stories by people who you don't hear about that open the door. You had lots of Black employees for Social Security who had worked there when it was in the city, who had moved out to the suburbs and were willing to find a place in the suburbs at a time when it was not necessarily welcoming to them. But then you also needed people like John Michener who were willing to sort of know how the system worked and play some little tricks to open the doors that had been closed before. To compress a whole lot of analysis, you trace how the racial composition of some Baltimore neighborhoods changed and what effect that had or didn't have on median income. How would you summarize the situation African Americans created in the Liberty Road corridor in the decades following the Fair Housing Act of 1968? I think this is important because it's time that we update our idea of what happens when a neighborhood goes from black to white. And I think that there's been an idea for a long time that um, incomes are going to fall off a cliff or that a neighborhood's going to be in crisis. And that is just not true. You know, you drive up Liberty Road now and you see well-maintained houses of neatly mowed lawns, um, suburbanites who are concerned about the same sort of things that everybody else is. And what I found is that when a neighborhood goes from white to transitioning to predominantly black, um, incomes don't decline. Housing values fail, stay pretty stable. What's interesting is that in terms of home values, the biggest increases, if you compare Liberty Road, which is predominantly black now, Reisterstown Road, which is transitioning, and Bolero Road, which stays overwhelmingly white for now, um, the biggest growth in home values are in the places that are transitioning. And I suspect that's because at that point when an area is 5, 10, 15, 20% African-American, you have black and white home buyers bidding for your home. That's the time to buy. That's when the values are going to go up. So we can revise our idea that, you know, black neighborhoods in crisis, they're not. They're actually really profitable. At the same time, we can remember that racial discrimination still matters. When a neighborhood becomes 85% African-American, there are fewer people looking to buy. And the homes still increase in value, but more slowly than the ones in white and transitioning areas. And so it means that the suburban strategy, you know, the American way of building wealth and security, of buying a house and seeing it appreciate, it doesn't work as well for black home buyers 
simply because they're living in neighborhoods that eventually become black, whether they want them to or not. And so that's a way for us to understand that it's not all doom and gloom and that people can build real stable communities and maintain a middle-class income band in that area through a lot of hard work. And yet, racial inequality is still lurking in the background. It still shapes the kind of wealth that families are able to acquire and, and pass on to their children and other generations. We need to take a short pause in our conversation with sociology professor Gregory Smith-Simon about his book, Liberty Road, Black Middle-Class Suburbs and the Battle Between Civil Rights and Neoliberalism. When we're back, has integration disappeared? I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. In 1972, Baltimore County Executive Dale Anderson issued an order that a realtor who sold a home to a black buyer had to report that sale to county police. Gregory Smith-Simon reports that in his book, Liberty Road, Black Middle Class Suburbs and the Battle Between Civil Rights and Neoliberalism. Smith-Simon writes that a Civil Rights Commission representative scoffed at the idea the order was meant to protect African Americans from violence. Much more likely, it was intimidation. Yet, Gregory Smith-Simon, you found that 10 years after that order, the county's black population had nearly doubled. But, I mean, if Baltimore County was on its way to integration in the late 20th century, it didn't last long. Walk us through the transition from segregation to integration and back. When the Fair Housing Act passed, people said that they weren't going to take folks to court. They didn't know if they would win. Um, So one local activist said that he would call up an apartment complex, uh, ask if there was an apartment, they would say no. And then he would call up using what he called his white voice, ask if there was an apartment, and they would say yes. And then call him back a third time and say, well, you know, that black caller and that white caller were the same person. You've got to rectify this. And they would just use those sort of direct tactics to get people to open up. The other thing that's different about the suburbs and the city is that it's not a zero-sum game. Um, You've got a lot of farmland where people are building houses. And for African-American buyers, the idea of buying a new house is exciting. And buying a new house in a neighborhood that hasn't been claimed by anybody yet is a lot better than moving into a neighborhood with established residents who may not be welcoming. And so the story of growth in the suburbs is, is different than transition in an existing city. And so as people moved out, you had different sorts of patterns, a lot of growth in the most rural, emptiest areas. Um, but you do, as you said, you, you don't get sustained integration. I mean, I think it's amazing, you know, the process, if you look at the racial composition of someplace like Randallstown High School, in the 50s, transition in, in cities took a matter of weeks. Nowadays, it takes decades. And that means that, you know, generations of students grow up going to mixed and integrated schools. And I think that that's a really valuable experience for them. It's something that I value in the students that I teach at the college level. But eventually that changes and and you come back to segregation because the white residents no longer flee, they stay. 
But, you know, this is happening in my mother's neighborhood in Reisterstown. Each time a house goes up for sale in a neighborhood that's, you know, got a substantial black residential population, the odds increase that the next buyer is going to be black. And that's fine, except that if no white folks want to buy houses there, you're eventually going to have an all black neighborhood. Um, and so you've fallen back. The thing that's interesting is that for me, integration is a value in itself. When I talked to activists in the 1960s, they didn't particularly want to live in neighborhoods surrounded by white people. They just knew that breaking that color line was necessary to get the adequate sorts of housing and services that they were entitled to. Um, integration was an ends to a goal. It wasn't the goal itself. Um, and nowadays, when you ask activists, so what does integration mean to you? When I do that, they look me dead in the eye and they say nothing. Um, and I would love to see us reopen that conversation about what we want our suburban and our urban neighborhoods to look like, because I think we all are better off when we have access to housing in all of the neighborhoods in the metro area, and we're not sort of cut into two or three different little slices, depending on our, our race, our ethnicity, our religion. This is On the Record on WIPR. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with Brooklyn College professor Gregory Smith-Simon, who grew up in Reisterstown, about his book about Randallstown. It's called Liberty Road, Black Middle Class Suburbs and the Battle Between Civil Rights and Neoliberalism. You also trace some ways in which African-American civic leaders of suburban neighborhoods use some of the same tactics that white homeowners associations had used decades before to exclude blacks. That was one of the things I wanted to understand because we know from histories of the suburbs that they were built in ways to create um, white enclaves that African-Americans couldn't get into. And those suburban enclaves were given tools to exclude people. Well, what happens when African-Americans do get in and find these tools lying around that are intended to keep other people out? Um, and it creates some some complicated sort of political moments. Um, in some ways, African-Americans use those tools to maintain their neighborhoods. So L. White Campbell, who's a really incredible neighborhood activist who lived for a long time along Liberty Road, uh, used her community association and their association rules on on yard maintenance and mowing the lawn to make sure that absentee landlords didn't neglect the properties so that the neighborhood stayed clean and desirable so that the investments that everyone had made, black and white, in that neighborhood were maintained. Um, but then you also have questions about things like mass transit. Um, you know, suburbs across the country have had poor mass transit for years in the sort of erroneous belief that mass transit doesn't help people get around. It would allow, you know, poor people from the city to come out and cause trouble. Um, and Emily Wolfson, a, a white and Jewish activist in the county, said, you know, for 50 years, we've been trying to get a bus line out here. And 50 years ago, little old white ladies said, I'm going to be raped in my bed and have my TV stolen if you extend that bus line up here. She said, and 50 years later, little old black ladies are saying, I'm going to be raped in my bed and have my TV stolen if you extend that bus line up here. She said, you know, I want to tell them what people were saying about them 50 years ago. Um, that's an example of a way that the exclusivity of the suburbs has been adopted by a new generation. You talked to dozens of county residents. One in particular I want to ask you about because his work was extraordinary. Lewis S. Diggs wrote more than a dozen books tracing African-American history in Baltimore County. He died in October. What did you learn from Lewis Diggs? Lewis Diggs was really um, 
just a remarkable local treasure. He was a retired Navy vet who had been substitute teaching at Catonsville High School, I believe it was, and wanted his students to write local histories. And Black students in Black neighborhoods couldn't find anything about the histories. And so he went out and collected them. He interviewed um, older residents in what he eventually identified as over 40 uh, historic African-American communities scattered across Baltimore County. Um, you know, when I was growing up in Reisterstown, there was a neighborhood on Bond Avenue. And, you know, the local kids would tell you that that the houses there used to be the old slave quarters. And I'll tell you, growing up, I just thought it was, you know, a tall tale. I didn't think that that could be true. Well, it turns out that Bond Avenue and and these other historic communities predate emancipation. Um, Baltimore County had a peculiar uh, approach to the peculiar institution of enslavement, where many African-American enslaved people were uh, did what was called um, living away. Um, they didn't live on the plantation. They would work all day at the plantation and then go home to a community that was a mix of freed and enslaved blacks. Um, well, Lewis Diggs interviewed elderly people who had very early memories of what these communities were like, what it was like when Baltimore County was rural, when there were very few African-Americans, and when these communities were tightly organized right around the local church, a couple institutions, when they would travel to a neighboring community just to have an event, an opportunity to socialize with other people. Um, he has done hundreds of interviews. And as you said, Louis Diggs passed away recently. I really hope, um, and I have not talked to his family since he passed, that institutions are interested in making an archive out of these interviews that are absolutely irreplaceable. Um, I'll mention one name that I learned about through Louis Diggs' work. Um, as as I said, I grew up in, in Reisterstown, and, and there's an announcement um, uh, I, I like to think of September 12th as Charles Thomas Day, because September 12th, 1849, there's an announcement in the newspaper that a man named Charles Thomas, who was enslaved in Reisterstown, had escaped. And I haven't found in the historic record any evidence of whether he made it or whether he was recaptured. Um, but Reisterstown is about a 30-mile walk to the Mason-Dixon line. And I like to think that he got away and that that was the first step to freedom. And that was the kind of history that you know, no one I knew in the county knew about. And, uh, you know, as a white kid, I wasn't going to ask my black classmates um, what they knew about their communities and about slavery. But I think it's the sort of history that would make, you know, your life in a place so much richer and more meaningful. Um, and Lewis Diggs took a lot of steps to make sure that that history got preserved and that those stories got told. And I, I hope that his work lives on. I am so, um, I guess, accustomed to what the um, what Baltimore County looks like, what the the majority black suburbs as well as the white areas, that I was surprised to read that many other metropolitan areas, cities with you know pretty big black populations, don't have middle class. African American suburbs. What what are the elements that have made it possible in Baltimore County? There are lots of cities around the country that have big black populations inside the city boundaries and traditionally white suburbs. You could be talking about Baltimore, Washington, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, St. Louis. And some of those places have real significant African American suburbs, and some of them really don't. Um, so the sorts of things you need are found in Baltimore was why it was such an incredible place to study because it really answered the question of how we integrate and break down that color line between city and suburb. It helps to have an employer 
that gives African Americans a reason to live out in the suburbs, and social security was important there. You need local activists who are willing, able to struggle against the color line. And you need professionals, often black professionals, but white professionals as well, who are willing to cross the color line. You know, realtors, builders, uh, you know, county officials, everyday planners, people who are willing to challenge those sorts of, of boundaries. So between the employment and the professionals, the activists and the everyday residents who are willing to cross that, I think when you look at other cities, you see places that have had that kind of a mix and get a black suburb. And then there are cities that have been to where you're in a city in a predominantly black neighborhood and you walk across a crosswalk across the street and you're in a 95% white area. You know, there are lots of places in America that still have that stark divide. And um, that's the story of how Baltimore got these suburbs, but it's also a story of what we can do to increase the range that people have. You know, give people really the right to move around freely and safely uh, in the metro area. Thanks for telling us about Liberty Road. It's been such a pleasure, Sheila. Thank you so much. Gregory Smith Simon's latest book is Liberty Road, Black Middle Class Suburbs and the Battle Between Civil Rights and Neoliberalism. I'm Sheila Cass, so happy you've joined us on the record. Come back tomorrow 